All right. Uh, go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Revelation. It's the last book in the Bible. The book of Revelation, we're going to be looking at chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. And just real quick, Revelation does not have an S on the end of it. It is not Revelations. Right, just throwing that out there. It's just a thing that bothers me. It's Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. Good morning. Right? This, this feels a little weird to say, right? I've never said good morning to this congregation ever. Um, right? This is, we, we've, for those of you who are visiting, we, we've met in other church buildings for the last 13 years, and we've only been able to meet at night. So this is kind of weird for us to meet with the sun out. Um, we're a vampire church, but not today. Um, right? So we praise God, right, for this first morning service we've ever had. And this is our first service ever as Covenant Reformed Baptist Church. And that's really a great thing to be able to say. Um, and today feels special, right? And today is special. Uh, first and foremost, it is the Lord's Day, right? We have 52 very special days each year that the Lord has given to us. This day was special since Christ was raised upon it, right? On the first day of the week, that's whenever this day became the Christian Sabbath. And this day God is blessed and appointed as the day that we would gather together corporately to meet with him, and one another, and he's promised to meet with us and bless us in a special way. Uh, but today is also special to us as an individual congregation. Right? Today marks the fruition of much prayer, uh, much work, much time, and much dedication. Uh, and today is the fruition of many blessings that God has given to us as a church, like undeniable blessings. We should not be a church. We shouldn't be a church anymore. We, we, by man's standards, we should have died as a church seven years ago. And yet here we are because God has been kind. Today is special to us. God has been immeasurably kind to us as individuals and as a congregation. And since today is our first service as CRBC and our first service in this building, it kind of feels like a replant. Right, a little bit. It feels like a replant. Uh, and in some ways it is, right? We've assumed a new identity as a church. We're starting a new work uh, in a new part of town. Uh, it feels new. And in light of this newness, I thought it would be fitting to preach this first sermon explicitly about Jesus Christ and worshiping him. Right now, don't get me wrong. All the sermons I preach are intended to exalt Christ and make much of him and lead us to worship him. Right? He is, after all, our Lord our Savior, our Redeemer, the head of the church, the faithful husband of his bride, the firstborn of all creation, the creator and sustainer of the world, and our great and merciful God. Right? Everything that we do ought to be motivated by a desire to make much of him. But I want to be explicitly and especially uh, strong in this first sermon about exalting Christ and worshiping him. And I want to do that because I want us all to be clear about why this church exists. We exist for the glory of Christ. This is his church. Right? It's not our church. And I'm not, I don't mean the building. I mean the church is the people. Christ is the head of the church. This is his church. This church exists because Christ bought it with his blood. And what separates us from the rest of the world is that we have Christ. And the world does not. So we're going to make much of him. Because he is everything. Now before I begin, I need to be honest about something. Um, the outline of this sermon comes straight from Pastor Vodi Bauckham. 
I stole it. Yes, right? <laughs> but it's not stealing if you tell people that you stole it. That's what it's, cite your sources, right? I've heard Vody Bauckham preach this text, Revelation 1, 4 through 6, a few different times. It's kind of his thing. Uh, but here recently, I was at a conference where he preached from this text, and I just couldn't get away from it. And I leaned over to Autumn while we were there, and I said, I'm preaching this. Like, I'm preaching this on October 31st. I have to preach this text because it's glorious, right? So the outline uh, of the sermon and some of the points that I'm going to make this morning, I have taken and adapted from Pastor Bauckham. And you need to know that because honesty is important, right? As I said a minute ago, if you're going to steal for a sermon, cite your sources, right? That's how you do it cleanly. Um, But the outline of this sermon is incredibly simple. Uh, It's about worship. Specifically, it is about worshiping Christ, And the question that I want to answer, rather I'm going to ask and answer is this. Why should you worship Christ? Why should you worship Christ? That's why we're here. That's why the church exists. But why? Why should we worship him? And the answer is twofold. It's two parts. We worship Christ because of who he is. And we worship Christ because of what he has done for us. So that's where we're heading this morning, by God's grace. And may he give us eyes to see that we would get a glimpse of Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. Now with that said, please stand with me if you would and are able as we read the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we thank you and we praise you for your many blessings and kindnesses toward us, your people. And we come to you once again asking for more grace because we know that to give to us will not diminish you because you are infinite. So we ask now that you would bless us this morning with spiritual eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to believe your word. Allow us a glimpse of of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us see him in his glory. And seeing, grant to us hearts full of worship and obedience to the King of all kings and Lord of all lords. We ask for this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so our text begins in verse 4. And how we do here, what I do is called expositional preaching. We will walk through the text, phrase by phrase, verse by verse. Beginning to end. So that's what we're going to do. Verse 4 begins, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. Now, we won't spend a ton of time on this, but the book of Revelation is actually a letter. It was written by John the Apostle. And he says that he's writing to the seven churches that are in Asia. Now, just real quick, these seven churches that John wrote to are named just a few verses later in this chapter, I believe. Um, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, Pergamum. Right, they're, they're real churches that existed back in the first century in what is now known as Turkey, but then was known as Asia. Uh, but those weren't the only churches in that region. 
Okay, there were many other churches in that region called Asia. Um, so I think, I say that to say this, I think John chose the number seven on purpose, right? In the book of Revelation, numbers have a lot, a lot of meaning, right? Numbers are highly symbolic throughout the book of Revelation. And the number seven uh, has a lot of symbolic meaning. Seven is a number of completion. It's a number of fullness, Right? So when John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, decided to write to seven churches, right? I, I, I think that there was a symbolic reason. Right? The seven churches, while they were real churches, were representative and symbolic of the fullness and completeness of the church, the universal church. So the seven churches symbolize the whole church. So then what John writes to these seven churches in Asia, he writes for the benefit of all churches. What he writes for the good of these believers is for the good of all believers. What he writes to these churches is beneficial for us all right down to today. All right, what is written in this letter is profitable for us because the seven churches are symbolic of the whole, full, complete church. Hold on to that because seven is going to become important to us in a moment. Right? That's why I explain that. Hold on to seven and its symbolism. And to these churches, John writes, grace to you and peace. We'll stop there. Right? There's something you need to know before we go further. Grace is the divine favor of God. Grace is unmerited blessing and unmerited kindness and help and salvation that God sovereignly bestows upon sinful human beings. Grace is a gift of blessing that God gives, right? And he gives it to whomever he wills, whenever he wills, as he wills to do it. Okay, so grace is from God. And where grace is given, where God gives blessing, peace follows. That's why grace and peace are always together, right? We have peace with God because he has first given us grace and brought us into fellowship with himself. Why am I highlighting this? This is not the main point of the sermon. Grace and peace are from God. Hold that. For our purposes this morning, hold that into your mind, just like you're holding the number seven and its symbolism. Remember, grace and peace come from God and God alone. It's his grace and his peace, so it comes from him. Hold that in your mind. Grace and peace come from God. John then goes on and tells us what I just told you. Right? He goes on to tell us where this grace comes from. He says, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. This is clearly a reference to God the Father, right? Him who is and who was and who is to come is a Greek way, right? The New Testament's written in Greek. It's a Greek way of expressing or trying to explain the name by which God revealed himself in Exodus 3.14. It's a very famous verse in the book of Exodus. You guys probably remember it. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to this people of Israel, or say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now that name, I am in Hebrew, means something like being, right? So God says that he is the one who just is, right? Try to wrap your mind around that for a moment, by the way. I just am. I have no beginning, I have no end, I always have been, I am now, and I always will be. God's saying, I am the one who is pure being itself. And John is doing the best that he can with human language to convey this. So he says, grace and peace.
to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. All right, so this God gives grace and peace to the church. And just real quick, if that doesn't convince you and you think I'm stretching uh, to explain what that means, in Revelation chapter 4, we read what the holy, uh, what these four living creatures that fly around the throne are singing. They're singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come, right? So him who is, was, and is to come is God the Father. So this first person who gives grace and peace is God the Father, but that's not the only person that John mentions. He goes on and says, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. So grace and peace to you comes from God the Father and the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now this one's a bit tricky. What does that mean, the seven spirits? Right? It sounds strange, but this is actually a reference to God, the Holy Spirit. Remember seven. Seven symbolizes completeness and fullness in this book. And so the seven spirits symbolize the fullness of the one spirit. Just as seven churches symbolize the fullness of the one church. Right? So this is the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. Now, John probably had, don't lose me here. This is all going to be very important here in a moment for what I said my thesis for the sermon was. Just hang in there. John probably had some Old Testament text in mind whenever he was, think, whenever he was saying this. He may have had Isaiah 11.2 in mind. And there, if you, read it, if you read that verse in the Septuagint, that is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, you'll see that there are seven characteristics given of the one spirit of the Lord. So the seven spirits may refer to the sevenfold spirit. Or, more probably, John has in mind Zechariah 4. And there, some of you remember this, there's a vision mentioned in Zechariah chapter 4 of a golden lampstand with seven bowls and seven lamps. It's the menorah that's in the temple. And we go on to read in Zechariah chapter 4 that the lampstand with seven lamps symbolizes this. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So again, the seven symbolize the one Holy Spirit, right? More than that, when we read the next line in this text in Revelation, we read of Jesus Christ. And where God the Father and Jesus Christ are mentioned together along with a third person, who's the third person always? It's always the Holy Spirit, right? So taking all that together, these seven spirits is, are the Holy Spirit, right? It is the Holy Spirit symbolically represented. So, again, what have we seen? Grace to you and peace comes from God the Father and from God the Holy Spirit, but John still isn't done. Grace and peace come from, verse 5, and from Jesus Christ. Do you see the significance? If grace and peace, things that only come from God come to us from Jesus Christ, then what does that mean? Jesus Christ is God. He is God. Why should you worship Jesus? Because he's God. First and foremost, let's get that straight right out the gate. You worship him because of who he is. And he is God. He's nothing less than God Almighty. He is the second person of the Holy Trinity. He is God in the flesh. He is God. He's the creator of the world. As John, the author of this book, says in his gospel, in chapter 1, verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He is the uncreated creator. 
Why should you worship him? Because he made you. Because he is your God. He owns you. He is your maker. Jesus Christ is the self-sustaining God. The one from whom all other things have their existence. He has no beginning. He has no end. He subsists in and of himself. He needs nothing from anyone. Consider that about yourself. You are dependent upon so many things, but he exists and subsists in and of himself. He needs nothing. He is God. He is far above us. He is not like us. He is the transcendent God of heaven and earth. He is holy in all that he does. He's not like us. He is God. He's the sustainer of the world. As Paul tells us in Colossians 1.17, in him all things hold together. And as the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 1.3, he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He's holding it together. If Christ willed that the earth cease to exist, we would evaporate into nothing. He is God. He holds the whole thing together. And he never changes. He's the one who never changes. He is God. Hebrews 1, or rather Hebrews 13, 8, we read, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? Beautiful verse. We often sentimentalize it a bit, right? Like this makes you feel good, right? He's the same. Absolutely, and you should. But there's something being taught here that we miss sometimes. Jesus Christ is immutable. He is the same yesterday, today, forever. That means he does not change and he cannot change because he's God. And the divine essence cannot change. It cannot change in any way whatsoever. You can't add to him or he would not be perfect anymore. You can't take away from him or he would not be perfect anymore. He is the immutable God, never changing in any way whatsoever with regard to his divine nature. He is God. Know this for certain. He is no ordinary man. He is no ordinary man. Is he a man? Yeah, absolutely he is. Right? He is human in every way that we are except without sin. He absolutely has a human nature, but he also has the divine nature. He is truly God, just as he is truly man. He is no ordinary man. He is the God-man. He is God. Please hear me. He is not just a prophet sent from God with a message, like the Muslims would tell you. He is that. Right? He is actually the prophet of God, capital P. The prophet that Moses spoke of in Deuteronomy. But he is also God. He's not just a priest who makes atonement for sinners. Though he is the great high priest, capital P. He is also God. And he is not just the king of the people of God. He is also God. He is no ordinary man. He's not even just an exalted man. He is God. So please mark this down right now. Whatever your thoughts are about Jesus Christ, they are not high enough. They're not high enough. My thoughts about him are not high enough because the finite cannot fathom the infinite God. Our thoughts are not high enough. And please hear me. If you confess Christ to be anything less than Almighty God, you are a blasphemer. If your thoughts about Christ don't land on and end with the glorious truth that He is God, then you have not went high enough and you are insulting His majesty. He is God. 
So why should you worship Jesus? Because he's God. And God is worthy of your worship. If Jesus is not God, you better not worship him because then you'll be guilty of idolatry. But indeed, Jesus is God. So you must worship him or be guilty of blasphemy and idolatry. He is God. Now, with that said, some people may want to know, why is Jesus mentioned last in this text? It's always the Father, Son, and then the Holy Spirit. Why is it the Father, Spirit, and now the Son? Um, and to quote Pastor Vody Bauckham, uh, John does that because John is about to go off. <laughs> right? John is about to burst into some praise to Christ, so he puts him last to make room. Right? So it still flows. John is about to launch into a glorious exaltation and doxology about our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? So why should you worship Christ? First, because he's God. But what else does John say? He says that Jesus is the faithful witness. He's the faithful witness. Jesus is the one who speaks the truth and only the truth. In his earthly ministry, he revealed God to us. He showed us exactly what God is like. He bears witness to the truth of the gospel. He gives true testimony to how we are to be saved through faith alone in him alone. He bears witness to God's law and God's ways and God's decrees and God's holiness and God's righteousness. And he only always tells the truth. And he did so in his earthly ministry perfectly unto death. He never wavered as paul says to timothy he made the good confession before pilate he refused to compromise on anything ever he only ever told the truth about god and salvation and himself and every other thing and notice here i thought this was brilliant john doesn't say that jesus was a faithful witness does he because there have been a lot of those there have been a lot of faithful witnesses throughout history the prophets were faithful witnesses to god Right? They spoke as God moved in them and gave them utterance. Um, godly priests in the Old Testament who faithfully taught the word of God, they were faithful witnesses to God. There are many men and women throughout the Old and New Testaments who were faithful witnesses to the truth. But Jesus is the faithful witness. The faithful witness. The faithful witness, the likes of which have never been nor ever will be repeated and what I mean is that he is the only one in history who has ever perfectly given a witness to the truth of God in every single way. He is the singular faithful witness. His doctrine was never off. You know, prophets could get things wrong when they weren't prophesying directly from God. So a prophet throughout his life could be wrong on some things. Again, not in the prophecy that he had given, but throughout the rest of his life, he could be wrong. You know that the godliest men and women in Scripture could get their doctrine wrong, but not Christ. Christ's doctrine was never wrong. 24-7, perfect in what he taught. Perfect in how he taught, with his tone. Being gentle to the ones who needed gentleness. Being stern with the ones who needed, to be, needed sternness. Having a backbone and also gentleness. He perfectly, not only in his doctrine, but in his disposition. He perfectly bore witness to God in those ways. In, his, in word, thought, and deed. In attitude and in action. He perfectly revealed God and his character and his will and his gospel to us. 
all other witnesses, all other prophets, all other believers have messed up their testimony in some way or another. Right? And what I mean is that all others who have borne witness about God were sinners. Right? There was something about them that was inconsistent with the witness that they were supposed to give about God. All of them. Go through the Old Testament. Look at every saint in the Old Testament, right? Who was supposed to give a good witness about God or was supposed to declare the truth about God. At some point, they were inconsistent. Abraham, he had Hagar. That's a bad one. Noah got drunk and naked. David had Bathsheba and Uriah. Jonah ran away. Job gets sinfully angry with the Lord. You get the point. We could go through all of them. Right? And some of you would say, well, you know, that there were some prophets that their sins are never mentioned, like Daniel. Yeah, yeah that's fine. I got them covered too. Uh, they sinned as well. And we know that because Paul tells us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one has ever given a perfectly faithful witness to God in every aspect of their life except for Jesus. The faithful witness. Completely consistent. Completely reliable. Nothing he does or will ever do will ever contradict his witness or his message. He is the faithful witness. And this makes sense because he himself is the truth. John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the faithful witness because he is the embodiment of truth itself. Apart from him, there is no truth. So why should you worship Jesus? Because he is the faithful witness, perfect in every way, perfectly revealing who God is and is the truth itself. Worship him. But John goes on and he tells us that Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. Firstborn of the dead. This is a reference to Jesus' resurrection from the dead on the third day after he was crucified. And on that day, our, our Lord Jesus was raised in glory, right? His human body was raised immortal and perfect, never to be sick or suffer or to die ever again. Now, some of you may be here thinking, but I thought Jesus wasn't the firstborn of the dead, right? Because he wasn't the first person to be raised from the dead. And he wasn't, right? You're right. Jesus is not the first person to be raised from the dead. There were a couple of people in the Old Testament who were raised from the dead, and Jesus himself and his earthly ministry raised some people from the dead too. But those resurrections weren't really resurrections, were they? What I mean is they were more like resuscitations. And I say that because the people who were raised from the dead eventually had to die again, right? They had to die again, Right? They were raised, but only for a short time. Eventually, they died a second time. Right? You've heard this, I'm sure. Poor Lazarus. Right? He had been sick. He died of his illness. He's been to heaven for four days now. Right? He's gotten death out of the way. He's enjoying himself. And then Jesus calls him back to life. <laughs> right? And he has to leave heaven, come back to earth. His soul is reunited with his body. And he has to live some more and then do it again. Right? Poor guy. <laughs> Lazarus died. Everyone who has ever been raised from the dead eventually had to die again, but not Jesus. Not him. When Jesus rose from the dead, he rose never to die again. When he came back to life, he came back to life of, on his own authority. He says, I have the authority to lay down my life and I have the authority to take it back up again. And then he did as God in his divine nature, he raised his human nature from the dead. When he came back, he conquered 
death. In his resurrection, he put death in the grave, so to speak. He killed death when he was raised. And being alive, he will never die again because as Paul tells us in Romans 6, death has no dominion over him. Our Lord Jesus did what every human being is consumed with being able to do in one way or another. He beat death. He beat death. And he says later in this letter, in one of my favorite verses in the entire book of Revelation, he says to John, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. He is alive. He conquered the grave. He will never die again. And so he is the firstborn of the dead. He is the first of this kind of resurrection. Moreover, the word firstborn here doesn't just mean the first, but it means the preeminent one. He is the one who is greater and higher and more glorious than any who will ever be raised from the dead because he is intrinsically the firstborn of all creation, as Paul says in Colossians 1. He is the preeminent one. He is greater than all, greater even than death because death could not hold him. And notice briefly with me, he is the firstborn. What does that mean? It means he won't be the only one. He's not the last born. There are going to be some who come after him. All who are found in him will likewise be born from the dead. All who are united to Christ by faith will be raised to glory at the last day with a new and glorified body just like the one he has. So our Lord Jesus has not only conquered death for himself, but he has conquered death for all who trust in him. He is the firstborn. And so we, Christian, we will be raised as well. So why should you worship Jesus? Because he conquered the grave. Conquered it for himself and for his people. Or you could say, because he died and behold, he is alive forevermore. But John still isn't done, is he? We're still on who he is. He goes on and says that Jesus is the ruler of kings on earth. This one gets me hype, right? In 2021, that feels really good to say. Jesus Christ is the ruler of kings on earth. He is the one with all power. Earthly kings and rulers have much power. But John reminds us here that Jesus is the king of all earthly kings. Jesus Christ is the true king. Jesus Christ is the true Lord. He is the highest of the highest. There are none above him. Let me say that again. There are none above him. We live in a secularist society where the state believes that it is God because the state believes that there is no authority higher than it because the state has been telling us for decades now that there is no God. The state says that it is God. But here the word of God declares to us he is the ruler of kings on earth. The state thinks that there are none above them. Jesus Christ says that there are none above him. The state is lower than Christ. He is the highest. He is the king of all kings, lord of all lords, governor of all governors, president of all presidents. He is the king. As our Lord Jesus himself said at his resurrection, Matthew 28, 18. 
all authority in heaven, and here's the part everyone wants to forget, and on earth has been given to me. This world belongs to Jesus Christ. Believe that. This world belongs to him. Right? Like, like we're Americans, right? We like the idea of like a democratic republic, right? Like we elect our officers. Jesus Christ is not running for king. This is a cosmic monarchy and you live in it. He is the king. And he is the God man ruled or rather earned his right to rule when he died for sinners and was raised from the dead. This world is his because all authority is his. So just real quick, anyone with any authority in any earthly government has received their measure of authority from him. Why? Because all authority is his. So if someone has even a small amount of authority on earth, then that means he gave it to them as a stewardship. No one on earth would have any authority if Christ did not first give it to them. And so, as stewards of his authority, all rulers will indeed answer to him for how they rule. And we like that. Right? We say, yeah, all the, all the politicians are going to answer to Christ. Just real quick, let me, let me throw this out to you. Everybody will answer to him, including you. If the kings of the earth answer to him, who are you? You will answer to him as well. Everyone will stand before him and everyone will confess that he is Lord and God and King. In one way or another, everyone will confess him whether willingly or begrudgingly, whether willingly you get on your knees and say, Christ is the king. I love him. I submit to him in faith. I pledge all of my obedience and allegiance to him. You'll bow to him or whether he rips the knees out of your legs and makes you fall down before him. You will bow to him. Everyone will. He is king. He is the king. Brothers and sisters, as king, He is running things even now. Even now. We're not waiting for some future millennium for him to reign. His reign began at his resurrection. And Psalm 2 tells us at his resurrection, God the Father said to him, as we read earlier, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. In other words... Jesus is running everything and has been since his resurrection. And he will smash and break down every nation and person and king that does not acknowledge his lordship. This world is his. Now, it's his. He is the ruler of kings on earth. He is reigning and guiding and directing every single thing that happens, every ounce of persecution, every death, every wicked ruler, every single thing. He's guiding and directing it all for his ends of spreading his empire, as Psalm 72 says, from the river to the ends of the earth. Again, I say this world is a monarchy and Jesus is king and everyone will answer to him. All authority is his. He sets up kingdoms and he smashes them. And he sets up kings and he brings them down as well. This is his world. So why should you worship him? Because he's the king. Because he is king. And this world and everything in it belongs to him. So thus far, we've seen that we should worship Jesus for who he is. We worship him because he is God. Because he is the faithful witness. Because he is the firstborn of the dead. 
because he is the ruler of kings on earth. And all of these things that we've seen so far, they overwhelm us. They put us in awe and they make us bow down in worship at his power and majesty. And as Vodi Bauckham said, God would have every right to grab us by the neck and throw us on the ground and say, Behold my son's raw power and majesty. Worship him. And that would be right. And that would be good. And we would still owe him all of our worship if this text ended right there simply because of who he is, because he is intrinsically worthy of our worship. But that is not all that is said about Jesus Christ. John writes, to him who loves us, to him who loves us, can you believe that this transcendent, majestic God that is terrifying, because he is, if you think about him for five seconds with seriousness, he's a terrifying God and he loves us loves us and this isn't a figure of speech or anything that's not oh love hear me no he loves us is what the text means he loves us now present tense he loves us now the same jesus before whom we fall and bow down in worship in awe and in terror at his raw majesty and power loves us worship him worship this jesus That this infinitely holy, majestic God would lower himself to love his creatures? That alone should move us to worship him. I don't think you understand. For him to love us is like for you to, with sincere affection, love a mound of dirt in your backyard. And that's still, the dirt is closer to you as a creature than you are to God. Because he is the creator. The amount of humility. The amount of condescension from God that he would love us. Should smack us and cause us to worship. He loves us. Us who are sinners. Those of us who have broken his law and offended his majesty. He loves us. Those of us. All of us who are not worth his time because we are so wicked and evil and sinful. He loves us. Please hear me. He knows everything about you. He knows that you're a sinner better than you do. I would argue that we recognize maybe 50% of our sin and I'm being generous. Maybe you recognize 50% of your sin. We sin so often and without thought that we don't even realize it half the time. Right? We're like fish. A fish doesn't know he's wet. We're so sinful, we don't even know we're sinning half the time. Right? It just comes out. Right? You just, it's, your, it's your thought. It's, it's your word. You just do it and you don't even realize it half the time until you actually reflect on what you've done later in the day. And then you go, oh man, I sinned. You didn't even realize it at the time, but he does. He is the omniscient God. He knows how bad that we are, and he knows it better than we do. And yet the text hasn't changed, has it, since I've told you that. To him who loves us. He knows what you are better than you do, and he loves you. What kind of God is this? 
What kind of love is this? We don't have words for this. This is a love that is a holy love that only God can love with. This is pure grace. Grace to you and peace. This is pure grace that he wouldn't just cast us off that we deserve it, but instead he has chosen to love us. Worship him. Worship him. But notice that his love isn't just some kind of sentimental emotion, right? We have this pagan notion of love, right? Like there's hearts everywhere and like you just can't help it. And like I just have these feelings for somebody. That's not biblical love. I'm not saying that there's no affection in real love, but real love is action. Real love does something. It's not just a feeling, but it acts for the better of others, for the ones that it loves. So John tells us, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Jesus Christ loves us and his great love for his people whom the Father had given to him in eternity past resulted in him freeing us from our sins by his blood. He has saved us. Christian, hear me. He has saved us. He has died for us. He freed us. And that implies payment. Again, slave kind of terminology here. Freedom comes at a price. He freed us from the debt that we owed to God for our sins. A debt that stood over us from the moment that we were conceived. A debt of damnation and wrath and judgment for our sins. A debt that you and I could not afford to pay because if we pay, we go to hell forever because of our sins. But the text says that Jesus freed us from our sins and he did so by his blood. He died for us. This is a penal substitution. He died for us. He went to the cross for us. And there on that cross, our sins were imputed to Christ. That is, they were credited to His account. They were put on His back, as it were. As the Apostle tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, God made Him to become sin. And then God the Father punished Him as if He had committed our sins. He was nailed to a tree for our sins. For the sins that we would commit. And he was punished in our place. And bore the full weight of the white hot wrath of God in our room instead. He paid our ransom to free us from God's wrath. He gave his life for ours. The just for the unjust. And he set us free. He saved us by his death. As the hymn says, his blood was the payment. His life was the cost He loved us and saved us. He freed us from our sins. Christian, again, he loves you. He loves you. We think it's a kid's song, but it's not. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Did you know that there's a fifth verse? Jesus loves me, he who died Heaven's gates to open wide. He will wash away my sin. Let his little child come in. Yes, Jesus loves me. Amen. That better not be just a kid's song or we're lost. He loves us. Why should you worship Jesus? Because he loves you and he freed you from your sins by his blood. Worship him. 
But we're still not done. John tells us one last thing about what Jesus has done for us. Jesus has made us a kingdom. Priests to his God and Father. He's made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. By his blood, he has taken us who were not the people of God and made us into a holy nation. A nation chosen by God. A nation sprinkled with the blood of Christ and made holy. Jesus Christ has set us apart. He has sanctified us and made us a people for God's own possession, as Peter tells us in 2 Peter, or 1 Peter 2. We are a people who are not like the world, but rather who have been marked out for blessing and for special service to God. And what is that service? It's a priesthood. A kingdom of priests. Jesus Christ has made each one of us, every single believer, a priest to his God and Father. And what do priests do? They worship God. Our Lord Jesus has made us into worshipers. Once we could not come near to God because of our sin and our wickedness, we were dirty and did not dare to approach God lest we die. We were, as it were, not permitted into the Holy of Holies where God dwells. We were unfit. We were not permitted to come into the presence of God and worship. And more than that, let's keep it real, we didn't want to either. Right? The Bible says you didn't want to. Right? I'm not just saying that for me. The mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. You were born a God-hater. You didn't want to go into his presence and worship him. You didn't want anything to do with him. But Jesus freed us, changed us, washed us in his blood, made us clean, and in doing so, turned us into priests to his God and Father. Jesus has brought us into the Holy of Holies by his blood. And given us the ability, desire, and right standing with God that we need so that we can worship Him properly. Jesus has turned a sinful, hell-bound people into a holy kingdom of true worshipers. We were not worthy to worship God. We weren't. You can't just, like this real quick, you can't approach God just because you want to. You have no right to come before him. You must be washed clean first. Look at the Old Testament rituals that the priests had to go through. They had to be cleansed before they could participate in the worship of God. It's much more significant than that. What they did pointed forward to the fact that we needed to be washed before we would be permitted to approach God in worship. And Jesus has done it for us. Jesus has met our need. So why should you worship Jesus? Because he saved you in order to turn you into a worshiper. And now we come to the end of our text. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That is to Jesus Christ. Be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. John ends with a doxology with a word of praise to Christ. And in doing so, what he's doing is he's calling all of us who have been loved and freed by Christ to fall down on our faces in worship, saying along with him, Amen, all glory be to Christ forever and ever. Worship him. Worship him. He is worthy. He is worthy. 
I'm not saying that no one in here believes that, but like I wish that there was a way that I could put this into your heart and help you to see he is worthy of all of your affection, of all of your worship, of all of your admiration, all of your devotion, all of your love, all of your obedience, all of everything that is within you. He is worthy because of who he is. And he's worthy because of what he has done. He is worthy. And if you're here and you're not a believer, I beg you to repent of your sins and believe on Christ. Agree with God that you're a sinner. Admit it to him. Admit that you deserve death and hell because you've been living in rebellion against him. And then turn to Christ. Believe that he loves you. And that he has freed you from your sins by his death and resurrection from the dead. All you must do is believe on him and you will certainly be saved. The word of God tells you to call upon him in faith to save you. And he will. And then you can begin worshiping with the rest of God's people as you should. Worship him. He is worthy. Amen. Let's pray. Our great God and King, Lord Jesus, we thank you for who you are and for what you've done for us. Take this message that was just preached and seal it to our hearts. Help us to believe. Help us to have these things before us always that we might always, every day, at all times, be worshipers. Help us to put you first, Lord Jesus, because you are worthy. We ask in your name. Amen.